As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Soccer Show and our latest round of listener questions. On today's show, we'll be predicting big relegations, talking about tall players, and hopping in the time machine once again to add national team legends to our respective national teams. La di da. My name's Ryan Bailey. Joining me today, a man who's been playing a game of owl or chupacabra. Taylor Rockwell, please explain hmm. yourself. Uh, yeah, we have owls in our backyard in the woods behind our house, and they, uh, turns out sound terrifying and make weird noises that aren't just like the cute hoot hoot that you would expect from children's cartoons. Instead, they make bizarre noises that have me wondering if it's an owl or a supernatural creature. I would kind of be okay if it were Chupacabra or, or the Loch Ness Monster or any other mythical creatures. They're all welcome. Hmm. You got Mulder and Scully on the case? <laughs> always, always. You got to. <laughs> I mean, I'm not sure what else they're up to, so why not? Indeed. Joining us, Tay-Tay, a man who has things to say about the 2026 World Cup final potentially being at SoFi Stadium, Joe Lowry. Hello. Sorry, I just can't get over... Taylor, I saw that tweet from you last night, and isn't Chupacabra... Doesn't Ben Wyatt end up saying that a lot in Parks and Rec when he's like... There's some line in Parks and Rec, and I'm trying to remember what it is, where that character just says that word over and over again in in a strange voice, and it's driving me insane. Anyway... Ryan, Ooh, that does sound familiar. You are correct. I yeah. think it might be when he's like panics because he gets weird around policemen and things like that. I don't know what it is, but it doesn't it's matter. It's either that or the episode where he gets drunk on blueberry wine. It's one or the other. <laughs> right. but yes, either way, I think that is a thing that he does. Maybe a listener will know. If so, please tweet at us and I'll feel a lot better about myself. Uh, Ryan, yeah, watching that game, some of the League's Cup showcase, I, I think that's what it was. Not really very clear why LAFC and the Galaxy were playing teams from League MX, but they were at SoFi Stadium last night, the first games ever at SoFi Stadium, and the field was narrow. I tweeted about it, and people were kind enough to inform me that it does look like there's going to be about $100 million spent on widening that field. And we were talking a little bit before we started recording. That's not the simplest process, but I think it is an important one if there are going to be big World Cup games played at SoFi in 2026, and the same will go for a few other NFL stadiums if that needs to happen. But I learned something from Twitter last night, and that doesn't happen a whole lot. 
Oh, that's good to know, Joe. I, I imagine if they're going to expand it and spend 100 million on it, they're just going to have a bunch of guys just push the stands on each side to make it a bit wider. Is that what they're going to do? <laughs> they're just going to squish the stadiums in on themselves. Yeah, the, the stands on in on themselves. I think that's exactly what's going to happen. Excellent stuff, Joe. Joining us, rounding out our pack, a man who's buying a Nottingham Forest brand new third kit released today as we record, and there's a chance he's going to get jizz on it. Graham Ruthman, hello. <laughs> oh no, I should have known that you would somehow get a Jez, Jez Horncamp pun into d- today's show. You were the first person that I thought of, Ryan, after I saw that Jez is on his way to the Premier League. Take I that as you will. Yeah, yeah, Jez Horncamp, the Dutch striker linked with Nottingham Forest uh, as we speak. And I know, Graham, you're expecting me to come on here with loads and loads of Jez oh, puns. And frankly, there's Jez all over my timeline right now. It's everywhere, it's everywhere. But I'm, I'm not feeling that spunky today. I'm not going to be jostling for those kinds of sticky situations today, Graham. Oh, wow. You can rest assured, okay? Okay, okay, Ryan Bailey. I'm reeling <laughs> after that, but I should have expected it. Yeah. Did you it get it all easy. out, Ryan? Did you get it all out? Yeah, I think it's all out now. It's all out, Tate. Listener, that's the most jizz fun you'll have today outside of incognito mode, I promise you. Let's go on with listener questions, shall we? Uh, plenty to be getting on with. Adam Forni- Are Forminawa. Are you just going to talk over this one? You're not going to acknowledge the weirdness of this owl noise? Come on now. <laughs> that's what that is? Oh my that gosh. is the owl. Exactly. Is that an that's owl or terrifying. chupacabra? You tell or me. Or is it a dog? <laughs> I burned down the house. <laughs> Time to move, Taylor. Sorry. And that's, co- that's coming from Graham. Graham is telling me to burn down the house. Now I'm concerned. Oh, yeah, my house physically attacks me and throws me into walls, but that is something else. <laughs> Graham, now you understand why I was freaked out in the middle of the night. Yeah, the Glasgow vigilantes are going to be over to make sure everything's okay, Taylor, I think is what's going to happen here. Um, wow, that was that. that was interesting. Adam Formanoia has got a question for us. What is the biggest club in Europe you think could reasonably re- be relegated at some point in the next 10 years? Loves the show. Keep doing what you're doing, says Adam. (laughs) What's that, Graham? (laughs) Just said Manchester United, sorry. Yeah, I thought you did. You want to explain yourself? Um, Bad. (laughs) Not going well. I mean, you say it as a joke, but Man United have not been a top flight team forever. I think, was it the 80s? They were last time they were down. Things, stranger things have happened, Graham. Yeah, Dennis Law relegated them. Dennis Law, obviously one of their their best ever player. There's a statue of Dennis Law outside Old Trafford, the Holy Trinity statue, and he relegated them for he was playing for Manchester City at the time, and he he scored a, a winner in the last day of the season for City to send Manchester City down. So maybe maybe that's what's going to happen here. Ronaldo's going to sign for City this summer, and then he's going to relegate Manchester United. <laughs> so much narrative. Uh, Graham, is there any other nominations for the next decade? Do you think uh, any any teams, maybe any other Premier League teams who could be reasonably relegated, do we think? Yeah, so I am going to leave the obvious answer here because I feel like others may have stuff to say about some other North West Premier League clubs that <laughs> might uh, be relegated at some point in the next 10 years. But I'm actually going to head to Spain and I'm going to nominate Valencia. So considering the the struggles they've had over the last decade and a half, it's kind of remarkable that Valencia haven't actually been been relegated recently. They're obviously one of the, the biggest clubs in Spain. Traditionally, they're a third or fourth force behind Barcelona and Real Madrid. They won the Liga in uh, 2004, so not that long ago. But since then, it's it's just been kind of crisis after crisis financially. It seems like they're ju- they're always just two or three years away from oblivion. This summer has been another difficult one for them. They've barely spent anything in the transfer market, and that's after a couple years of selling their best players on the cheap just to stay afloat. They've got a very unpopular owner who makes rash decisions. Peter Lim, he sacked Marcelino 
just uh, months, a few, a couple of seasons back, they actually had a good manager and were doing relatively okay. They won the Copa del Rey and they got back in the Champions League. And then Peter Lim sacked Marcelino just a few months after that. And this season, they have Gennaro Gattuso as their new manager. Maybe not the sort of character you want going into <laughs> a, a volatile situation. I actually don't think Valencia will get relegated this season. But if the sort of struggles they've been having continue, you'd you'd have to think by the law of averages at some point in the next 10 years, they, they will be at threat. Peter Lim also hired Gary Neville, Graham. We have to think about that. Exactly. <laughs> and Phil Neville. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Um, let's keep it in Spain, Graham. Is it crazy to suggest Barcelona? Not necessarily for sporting reasons, but let's bear in mind last year they were technically bankrupt uh, in the first quarter of the year. Uh, there was reports that their chief executive, Ferran Revetere, he said the club would have been dissolved last April if it were a PLC. Uh, because it had been taken to such terrible uh, financial places by the previous board. I mean, they are playing with fire quite a bit. You could see in the la- next few years, Graham, potentially um, financial mismanagement, maybe just uh, just bringing Barcelona out of the uh, Liga for the first time. But I mean, they are an institution. You'd think they'd be protected against that kind of thing. But weirder things have happened. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, people said that about Rangers in Scotland. That's the the road you're going down here, isn't it? The kind, yeah. of, the kind of financial oblivion, relegation. Everyone said there's no way Rangers will will go down. Similar sort of situation in Scotland to Spain, where you know you have two dominant forces who just kind of share the league titles amongst themselves, and Rangers uh, got kicked out of the, the Scottish league system and then forced to reapply in the bottom tier because they they went into liquidation. So. I guess it's a possibility, but it feels like Joanne Laporta is pulling so many levers at the moment and selling so much of the family silver that that might be more than 10 years off. But maybe 11 or 12, maybe as soon as those 10 years are over, maybe Barcelona are in Segunda, Segunda Division. So many levers, so little time. Let's bring in Taylor Rockwell for his perspective on this question. Actually, I wanted to ask uh, Graham another question. Graham, do you was the Manchester United one more a joke, or do you actually feel like they could be? Because I think... My answer to this question is fairly boring because barring match-fixing scandals or financial scandals, I don't see many of the like Super League clubs and clubs in that sort of stratosphere actually being at threat of relegation. I feel like they're almost too big to fail. Uh, famous last words there. So do you, do you feel like Manchester United really could? No, not really. I think it would take... Uh... A, a, a string of catastrophic decisions mm-hmm. and obviously there's been some bad decisions but you look at how bad Manchester United were last season their worst ever points tally in the, in the Premier League era and they still finished sixth yeah. so there is there is quite a, a big cushion from where they are to the to the relegation zone and even 10 years plotting out I, I think the next 10 years could be quite difficult for Manchester United, but I'd be surprised if they're anywhere close to, yeah. to relegation. So that's kind of how I feel about them. Like, And I think about like Chelsea in the second Jose Mourinho tenure when they had an absolutely atrocious season. Everything was wrong. They were losing. It felt like every single game, and I think at worst they were in maybe 13th when he was sacked. And so a, a team like that, like if you're talking about Bournemouth, losing a bunch of games and there being a bunch of discontent and the manager leaving, that feels like they are nailed on for the, for the bottom of the table. But when you have the resources of some of the larger clubs and the talent in that squad, yeah. a lot of times I think the talent is enough to get you through that season. So I think there's that aspect of it. I also think there are clubs that are so massive 
honestly, like to their countries and not not just to like the league itself, but to the actual economy of the league. I have to think a ton of tourism to Barcelona. Barcelona, a be- beautiful city with lots of tourist uh, tourist destinations. But Barcelona, the club, is is one of them, is chief among them, I would argue. And so I think there is a vested interest in not letting those teams have that level of crisis. I don't know how you could rectify that if Barcelona continued to pull those levers and suddenly had nothing else to sell. And they themselves, I think I'm correct in saying by the structure, Barcelona, Real Madrid, the same, can't be acquired. It would require all of the uh, voting members to agree to sell to an individual, and I don't think that would ever reach a majority level. So I think that could maybe be it, is like way down the road, if they really do sell all of their assets Barcelona and aren't able to get out of the financial hole, maybe that's where they could have some issues. But short of that, I think the biggest clubs that I had on my list were similar to Valencia, teams that have sort of already proven themselves to be, to struggle and have some issues uh, making the best decisions, uh, like Hertha Berlin, and I would say like Everton. I'm guessing that's who Graham was uh, alluding to yes. earlier, Everton. Yeah. is one that does seem like if some things do not go well for them this season, they might be in some trouble. And maybe that continues on from this point. Taylor, building on your Barcelona point there, I think we might only mm-hmm. be a couple of years away from Barcelona just turning themselves into an NFT, like as a club, like the whole thing, uh, maybe just <laughs> playing NFT games. So that, that could cause them to crash and be relegated. I mean, an yeah. NFT company literally bought 25% of Barcelona Studios, I think it was last week, and they have turned Johan Cruyff into an NFT as well. So you're not, you're not far away from that actually being a reality already. Oh, boy. That, uh, that, that, hurt, that hurt my soul a little bit, hearing you say what you just said. Oh, yeah. I'm guessing Johan Cruyff wouldn't love that. He's chain-smoking in his grave right now out of frustration. He went for about six hundred grand, <laughs> if it's any consolation, uh, if I can remember correctly, on that See, sale. That was that that was my first reaction as well, is that Cruyff will be turning in his grave. But Cruyff actually may have been at the front of the NFT. Uh, uh, yeah, you're right. The <laughs> NFT scam because he was always quick. Was he not one of the first players to have an agent? And obviously yep. there was the Puma Adidas thing mm-hmm. as well. So maybe he would be he'd be an NFT bro. He'd be hawking <laughs> crypto right now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh boy, Joe. Anything to add to this question? There's one more that I don't think anybody's mentioned yet, and that's Schalke. This is kind of cheating because they just got back up, but they're a a massive club. I went through and looked at – I was trying to figure out how to judge biggest, right? We all have this sort of nebulous idea of which clubs are big and which clubs are not. That's mostly based on history, I think, and and maybe some element of recent success than anything else. But I went and looked at Yahoo Finance and looked at, you know, clubs that are are making a lot of money or at least generating a lot of money, if not a lot of that money turning into profit. So this this was from 2020. It's a little outdated at this point, but I thought it was still a useful data point. Schalke, from this article in in, in 2020, had the 16th most revenue that year with $267.9 million dollars. That's a, a lot of money that went down to the second Bundesliga. They won promotion last year after winning the second Bundesliga, but I, I think they absolutely have a chance to go back down this year. I don't. We don't need to wait 10 years, as Adam said in his question. I think they could be going back and forth a little bit more until they can generate some stability. But I, I think Schalke, along with a lot of the other clubs you've said, that have been said, big clubs, uh, I, I don't think Manchester United or Barcelona or, or Chelsea are ever going to get relegated probably at, at this point, but... Clubs like Everton and, and Schalke and Hertha Berlin, those ones definitely could. Uh, Adam Fomenaya, thank you very much for that question. Let's go to Anthony Vladivia, who says, if you could add any national team legend in their prime to your current national team's pool of players, who would you add and why? Uh, I've got to say, Taylor, I really struggled with this question, but I'll go to you first. Uh, so... 
I just want to make sure I, I understand this correctly. I'm picking a Nash, a U.S. national team legend to put on the current U.S. national team, right? See. All right, because originally when I read this, I thought you can pick any national team legend, and I would have added Harry Kane. I think he makes the United States way better right away. Since I cannot do that, I think there are two sort of obvious names for the current U.S. men's national team. Brian McBride seems like he should be in there, but I honestly do not remember enough about Brian McBride's game to know if he can do some of the things that Greg Berhalter would be asking, which is a strange thing to say about a person who is now, I guess, technically Greg Berhalter's boss. Uh, But I think... He's very coachable, but I don't have Brian McBride on my list. I instead have the obvious one, Josie Altidore, I think capable of operating deeper, which is what we've uh, come to expect from that number nine spot, but then can also uh, obviously score some goals, handle the physicality, can hold up, can be good, like can win in the air, uh, and I think offers a lot, would offer a lot to this current U.S. team. And I also think it would be lovely if he could, because obviously the U.S. missed out on 2018. 2014, Josie has the hamstring injury and doesn't really... I think he doesn't play at all. I think he gets injured before the tournament and maybe gets hurt in that first game. And then in 2010, though he starts, I believe, every single game, doesn't score. And I think a lot of that was sort of the U.S. figuring things out as they went. They always had to make changes at halftime. But it's also the injury to Charlie Davies. They had built such a strong relationship. When Davies gets injured, it's Robbie Finley who replaces him. And there's just not that same connection Bob Bradley chops and changes throughout the tournament to find a better combo, but isn't able to do so. And so Josie, I think, doesn't end up scoring, which means I think he doesn't score at any World Cup. And I don't like that. So I think Josie coming in could get some goals for this U.S. team, has a ton of talent around him that can also create and provide him with some good chances. And I think that would be a good one. The other one, if not Josie, I know he's not really a number nine. I don't think of him as a striker, but I feel like Clint Dempsey just automatically makes this team better. Clint Dempsey in his prime could score some goals and do some Mm. things. Um, Taylor? Uh, the question said, if you could add any national team legend, and you went with, yep. uh, you led with Josie Altidore. With all due respect, did you understand the assignment? <laughs> I mean, if you think about uh, strikers for the U.S., like out and out number nines, there are not that many when it comes to legendary status. I think Eric Wynalda is probably on that list. I think Brian McBride is certainly on that list. And then I think it's probably Josie Altidore is probably our third best number nine of all time. Because I, as I said, I don't think of Clint Dempsey primarily as a striker same thing for Landon Donovan and they can do that but I don't think that's what I think of and so when I think of the top three best strikers of all time for the United States Josie's in that group well and and Taylor this actually brings up an interesting question because I had Josie Altidore first on my list as well but Mm -hmm. the second line in my notes is not sure he's a national team legend but he's 100% my answer here yeah because I I do think he fills a a big area of need and checks all the boxes all the reasons that you said Taylor I had him on my list for the same thing but it does make me legend. wonder, a tragic, a tragic legend. legend. For you, Taylor, how many national team, U.S. men's national team legends are there? There's a lot for the U.S. women's national team. A lot of players that I think were really groundbreaking and set the stage for others to follow. For the men's national team, how many do you think there are? I'm curious. Brexy. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's the obvious one. you got to lead with that one. Right. It's, it's, it's interesting, Joe, because you're right. Like In terms of legends for how good they were and how important they were there it, it, it there aren't as many as you would think because i would say like alexi lalas i would consider a, a u.s men's national team legend but i also think that's for the iconic hair and the goatee and for everything he's done since playing for the u.s I, but i don't know if that makes him like a playing legend necessarily so sure. it is a smaller pool it's probably brian mcbride it's uh, Clint Dempsey, it's Landon Donovan, maybe Eddie Pope. I think I would p- put Eddie Pope on that list. And then yeah. probably a lot of goalkeepers. Brad Friedel, yeah, Casey true. Keller, uh, Tim Howard. I think all probably deserve 
some recognition. And then there's other ones who are like on the line of that one, like Ernie Stewart I would put in there. I would say Eric Winalda is in that sort of like second tier in my mind. Uh, there was somebody else who was, oh, like Carlos Bocanegra maybe, but that's where we get into that sort of like was good but maybe never sure. at that like Reno? top tier level. Uh, Claudio Reyna, is that what you said, Graham? Claudio Reyna? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think Rain is. Yeah, I think Rain is definitely a legend. Yeah, He's probably I mean, on the Mount Rushmore. There's just it's an interesting question and one that mm. I don't have an answer for either. Taylor, I was curious about your perspective. It, it is a small group of players that initially come to mind, and part of that for me is recency bias. But I'd be curious. It'd be an interesting episode for us to do at some point down the line, maybe to survey people, survey listeners to see who. It's all relative, right? This is all subjective to what people think and who they think of as, as legends. But I'd be curious to get a larger sample size, and maybe we can talk about that at some point. Steve Turandolo, by the way, I can't believe I didn't say him earlier. Steve Turandolo is absolutely a U.S. men's national team legend. I think a, I think you meant Mayor of Hanover, Steve Turandolo. <laughs> I did. Really? I did. I apologize. Thank you, Joe. Right. Clean it up. Uh, Joe, <laughs> did you finish with your uh, answer there, Joe? Yeah, Josie Altador is my answer. Ryan, okay. I hear your criticism. I hear it too in my own head, but we're going to move on. Very well. Graham, what did you get? Uh, as the fan of a national team that was much better in decades gone by, can I just add all of our legends <laughs> to the the current pool of players? There is a lot of choice. I, I think I have the, the, the opposite problem, whereas there's a lot of choice for me to, to, to pick from. But I, I guess the, the obvious answer is Kenny Dugleish. He's he's still Scotland's joint record top scorer. He was one of the best players in the world at the time. I quite like Che Adams and Lyndon Dykes as Scotland's centre-forwards right now, but let's face it, neither of them are, are Kenny Dugleish. And close second would be Dennis Law. Again, another, another forward. He shares that all-time scoring record with Dugleish for Scotland. He's the only Scotland player, a Scottish player to have, to have won the Ballon d'Or, at least until Aaron Hickey wins it in a few years' time. So between those two... I would, I would happily take either of them. My, my third choice is nowhere near, near... I wanted to get a bit of variety so that there'd be better players than my third choice I'm about to name that in reality I would have in the team. But my third choice is nowhere near as good as Lord Dalglish. But let me explain. James McFadden, right? James McFadden was a decent Premier League player, but he produced his best football for Scotland. And there was a period when it was ridiculous how many big moments he produced. The the qualification campaign for the Euro 2008, we were in a group with Italy and France, which were the World Cup finalists at that time, World Cup quarter-finalists in Ukraine, and we pushed Italy and France all the way down to that final game, and that was pretty much, that may be exaggerating slightly, but there was about six games in that campaign where James McFadden scored the winner or a brilliant goal or something like that. So he, he was a talisman, and I'd quite like one of those again. But yeah, I guess Daglish or Law would, would be the, the obvious choice. Good choices too, G. Um, I, I say I, at the start of this question, I struggled with it because I read it as um, adding a player who would improve the team. I think logically that would be my reason for adding this player. And England are just so darn good. We're so deep. We've got so much all over the field. Uh, I, I joke, I joke. But I think what, what I the, the area I kind of looked at was midfield creativity, which over the last few years is something you could arguably say that England have lacked. But although arguably have gained a lot more of in recent years. Think of James Madison, Jack Grealish, Foden, Mason Mount. Those kind of players do bring a spark of creativity. Uh, so I settled basically on my favourite England player. Um, Graham, can you guess who it is from the 90s, creative player? Is uh, uh, another one of my blonde brethren? Yes, it is. <laughs> it's Mr. Paul Gascoigne, of course, um, who brought a lot of fun, a lot of creative talent to the England side. Uh, I think he's the best England player of my lifetime, certainly when he was in his prime. And just uh, maybe it's for nostalgia reasons in the 90s. I, I just thought he was absolutely wonderful, wonderful player. 
I think he's more creative than a lot of the midfield England options that we have, or attacking midfield, or number 10 options even. People like Conor Gallagher, Mason Mount, yes, all very good players, but they're not Paul Gascoigne, I suppose, would be my point. And I just think any any situation gets better with Paul Gascoigne in it, frankly. Um, so he would yeah. be my choice. That, that That's where my mind would go as well as, as an England fan. But as a second choice, what about... What about centre-back? Because England have had some world-class central defenders, and while I don't think the England defence at the moment is, is terrible, Maguire and Stones, it feels like a John Terry or a Rio Ferdinand or going all the way back, a, a Bobby Moore or someone like that might in, might improve that defence. Yeah, that's very true. Like a, Or Terry Butcher or a Bobby Moore or something like that. Yeah, I, I could definitely see that. Maybe JT, but I, I, I'd feel hard push to welcome John Terry back into any <laughs> team for other reasons, I suppose. But yeah, that's a good point. Um, are you saying Stones and Maguire aren't good enough, Graham? The, for England, <laughs> but outside of England, um, they, I have questions about them. Very well, very well. And uh, valid questions they are. Anthony, thank you very much for that question. Plenty more when we come back after this short break. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League 1? FX is Welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Total Soccer Show, welcome back to our listener questions. Cigar Siramajiri has got in contact and asked, would it be a good idea to allow players to wear earphones so that coaches can talk to them during the game? As coaches always seem to be shouting instructions in the stadium, would it be more, more efficient to do that through earphones? Uh, I'll start off, Joe, by saying that um, I, I would have been staunchly against this a few years ago because for the sole reason that soccer is a simple game and it's my belief that soccer should be the same at the very very top level as it is in the park or at the very lowest level where you and I might be playing it because that's one of the main selling points of soccer to me it's beautiful simplicity but now after we've had goal line technology after we've had VAR we have well established that top level soccer is a different game with different rules at the top level so now I kind of feel Joe that the gate is open for this kind of thing the floodgate even I don't really see why we shouldn't trial earphones for players, maybe certain players, maybe a captain. What do you think, Joe? I'm not opposed to it. Let's get the whole Brad Guzan MLS All-Star game of three years ago where he's just straight mm. on the mic with the broadcast crew. Let's get that going. I, I think Cigar is asking a couple of different questions here. And Ryan, I hear your point. I think it's an interesting one. The first question is, would it be a good idea? The second question is, would it be more efficient? The answer to the second question is, is easy to provide. Yes, it would. Of course it would be. Right? It would change... I think in some ways how teams play, and it would change soccer because players could actually hear their manager. Soccer's soccer's interesting, right, because you don't get timeouts. The hydration breaks have added a little bit of a wrinkle to this, and I think coaches probably really love those moments. 
where you get a break 30 minutes in during during the summer. And we don't see those a lot in Europe, but we see plenty of those in American soccer because they can take a, a chance to regroup. They can get the team and discuss key instructions for the last 15 minutes of a half. That's valuable because in soccer, you only get two timeouts. The one is before the game starts and the other one is at halftime, right? So there's not a lot of chances to communicate instructions which does limit the impact a coach can have. And that's why it's so important to teach players how to problem solve and how to think about how to break down a team, how to think about how to solve things live as you're going on the fly. So I think this would change soccer in some ways. I don't I don't know that I have a really strong preference on whether or not it would be a good idea. I'd be curious to see what it looks like. I don't think it would have a uniform uh, effect on soccer at all levels or even within the same level. I think about... Pep Guardiola getting on the mic and, and telling Calvin Phillips or, or whoever to do X, Y, Z, that's going to have a much different effect than Adrian Heath getting on the mic. I know this is not the same level, but at top division, Adrian Heath getting on the mic and telling his Minnesota United players to get stuck in, right? It's going to have a very different impact. I'd be curious to see what that looks like. Does it does it actually end up canceling out, or, or is there really that disparity? I would be curious to see, as I said, what this looks like. I'm not really itching for soccer to change much more than it already has, or at least not in this way. We can get rid of extra time first before we do this. But I am, I'm intrigued. Let's put it that way. Taylor Graham, what do you guys think? Have you ever tried running with AirPods in your ears? I feel like you might have to tape them in. Those <laughs> yeah. things do, do not stay in there. So there's, logis- there's a logistical issue. Also like balance I'll, issues I'll... that come from that, right? Where one ear has sound coming into it and, and yeah, it's going to be strange. Yeah, exactly. I, I also have visions of like a silent disco and which players would be clever enough to, to somehow rewire the connection and, and just get like their Spotify playlist through their earphones instead and just ig- ignore the coaches. And in fact, Coppa90 did a video of this with Marco Royce and uh, Axel Witzel, admittedly not coaches, but they got two players to instruct the, the two presenters how to play on the pitch through earphones. So it was the two professionals kind of instructing the, the two amateur pre- presenters, like what, what to do and where to run and how to kick the ball and things like that. So you, you, you should search that out if, when you get a, a moment. It's pretty entertaining. Graham, did that end with the uh, presenters being constantly confused and looking at the, at the guys who were giving them instructions to get further clarification? Yeah, yeah it did. Yep. So the, the, the yep. thing is, one of the presenters who, um, if you watch football videos on, on YouTube, you might be familiar with, Timsy, Michael Timms, is really, really good. He, and he Coppa90 used to get him to do a lot of the skills challenges that this made him so much worse that yep. she just left left him to his own devices <laughs> he did not yeah. need Axel Witzel in his ear I don't that, think anyone does that's kind of w- where I am on this one I get everything I get all the positives that uh, Ryan and Joe have mentioned I, I think where it falls down for me there's two things first of all like I have an auditory processing issue and if you have a hard time with sort of like distinguishing what's being said if there's a bunch of different stimuli at once, hearing crowd noise and your teammates and the opposition players, and then all of a sudden getting a voice in your ear, I think would be a little bit alarming at times. But I also think, uh, like Julian Nagelsmann has uh, wrap talked it up, about please, how Taylor, wants... Wrap it up, This is the voice in your ear telling you to wrap <laughs> See, there it we up. go, exactly. Now I'm pausing and be like, what? What's happening? Huh? What? Huh? Uh, no, but I think Julian Nagelsmann has said uh, American football is far more technologically advanced than uh, football or uh, soccer. The quarterback has an earpiece to listen to his coach. We really need something like that. As a football coach, you can achieve a lot more with something like that. So Nagelsmann is on board. But I also think Nagelsmann is a person who loves to convey instructions and maybe at the same time isn't always thinking about, do his players want that instruction? And I think that would be the issue for me, is that when you're 
when you see a quarterback getting instructions through that headset, like, like visualize that for a moment, and they're almost always putting their hands on the side of the helmet so they can cancel out all the other sound, and then they're kind of staring off into the middle distance while listening to the instruction, and then they call the play, or then they're listening and there's a little bit of back and forth. But it's in a moment of stoppage. It's in a moment when it's not as though yeah. as he snaps the ball, the coach is like, <laughs> 88's open, 88's open. Like, it's not, yeah. I mean, I'm sure that's happening on the <laughs> sidelines anyway, but I think that the idea of as you're sprinting back into defense for Jurgen Klopp to be in your ear, like two yards to the left, one yard to the right, like it would just end up being chaos, I think, for me. So if it yeah. was used sparingly as a, like, hey, we're making this adjustment, move to a back three, that's where I think it could totally like, work. Taylor, maybe you have three opportunities per half yeah. to get yes, on the mic exactly. and, and someone yeah. else is controlling yeah. it and you have to ask for permission to speak. Yeah. I think there could be fun ways to do this. Yeah. It all feels yeah. a little gimmicky and, and seriously like all-star gamey, but maybe that's where it starts and then, and then we see it expanded from there. You, you would need to pick your moments. You couldn't, like Harry Kane just about to take a shot and Antonio Conte's on the microphone going, <laughs> Harry! Just as he about to, actually an F one, so that they yeah. can the, the, the pit wall can talk Co- to yeah Carlos yeah, Sainz. So the right? pit wall can talk to Car- the drivers. And a couple of weeks ago, Carlos Sainz was overtaking um, who was it? Checo Perez, the Red Bull driver, and Ferrari are on the on the radio to him as he's going right, like wheel to wheel, and Carlos Sainz is going not now, not now, yeah. <laughs> which now I have I have visions of that happening in uh, in football. And and actually, was- to be serious about this question for a moment, there is a related discussion going on. In in tennis about this it's been going on for a few years about whether players should be so in tennis you're not allowed to receive any coaching from the sidelines the wta changed this which is the women's tour they changed this a couple years ago and so in their tournaments you are now allowed to receive coaching so i like i like in tennis how it's it's kind of down to the player to a certain extent to figure it out and down to match intelligence and i, and I guess i kind of also like that about football so i'm i'm not so keen but from a gimmicky point of view i very much want to see antonio conte shouting at harry kane just as he's about to, to take a penalty to, to be fair though graham in, in the wimbledon final nick kyrgios was having a very open dialogue with his bench um and yes. if there was an earpiece in maybe the uh the the whole game would or the match would have been a bit more peaceful but i get your point there i think i, I think the reason i stand in in favor of it is because if I were a professional soccer player I think I'd genuinely struggle to take instruction 40 yards away in a packed stadium from an angry person waving their arms and I think I'd find that information in my ear easier to handle I think Taylor you were saying the kind of same thing with the auditory processing is that fair no, I'm saying the opposite of that. I think oh. it would be way, way harder to get instruction in your ear. I, yeah, I think no, I, I think this would be I think it'd be very distracting. And I even even went as far as to think uh, we're going to talk about Jurgen Klopp later on Soccer 101 and about how good he, he seems to be at that individual man management and knowing when to make a joke versus when to be kind of intense and screamy and even making a joke as I'm like running back to defend a corner for him to be like, hey, that guy's not very good. It was just like, whoa, what's happening now? Like, I think I would I would constantly feel like I had, I guess, like a clop on my shoulder, which maybe is a fun product that we should market. Uh, if we're going to change the game uh, in a way that allows coaches to communicate better, like if if that's a if that's a thing we're doing, I've always sort of enjoyed the art in basketball of knowing when to call a timeout when your team is starting to lose the momentum or has lost the momentum, and that timeout sort of like uh, cools the other team off and allows things to reset. And I think that could be an interesting wrinkle 
it would be controversial because it would deliberately destroy the flow of the game, but that would be a thing that you'd have to consider. But I like the idea of a team being overwhelmed and needing to use their one timeout per half to sort of reset things and hope that they can make the necessary adjustment. I think that puts it more on the manager to be a better communicator in that moment, whereas I think a lot of coaches would end up relying on it and would end up constantly talking to players, and I could see that being distracting. Yeah. I also don't know how you would know which one you're supposed to talk to. So I think it would also it would inevitably lead to. I, I don't know why I keep going with your like a mixing like, boards in yes, front of exactly. the, on the touchline. Yeah, I wanted Van Dyke. I did want Firmino. <laughs> yeah, like, <laughs> two yards to the left. No, exactly. not you. I meant no one. I hit the wrong button yeah. again. That's on me. That's on me. Well, you'd end up with him uh, <laughs> slagging off Tiago and going into Tiago's ear. Coach, you hurt my feelings. There'll be all kinds of problems there as well. Um, whether we agree or not uh, on the earphone situation, can we all agree, gents, that we should have body cams on all the players, as we did in that Milan versus FC Cologne friendly a couple weeks back, where the Cologne players were wearing body cams, and we got this kind of video game footage. It looked absolutely incredible. Not only was it great yeah, it was for a cool. viewing experience, but I imagine for coaches that kind of information and seeing what the players see could be kind of useful too. What do you think, Joe? I'm, I'm here for it, Ryan. More more technology in soccer. Let's replace all the players with robots. Then we're really cooking with gas. Yeah. Holograms. Holograms. Then we make the teams NFTs like Barcelona, and uh, we're yep. all set. We're all set. We don't need Ryan, people at all. that's your second NFT reference. Do you have money in NFTs? Is that what's <laughs> happening here? Are you slowly trying to build that industry? Maybe you're used to and they're not worth anything anymore, Taylor. What's it to you? <laughs> anyway thank you very much Cigar for that question let's go to Guy Yedweb who says uh, when Yuri Nagelsmann coached uh, Nagbury uh, on loan at Hoffenheim um, and Guy says he was scouting at that time they played in a 3-5-2 with Gnabry as a second striker in the past before Sadio Mane Bayern Munich considered Gnabry their best Lewandowski backup what would it take, asks Guy, for Bayern Munich to implement that kind of 3-5-2 and would it work? Joe Lowry, uh, if my uh, uh, memory serves me correct, Bayern were in a 4-2-3-1 for the Super Cup. Uh, there was no back three. What do you think about this one? Yeah, so so Graham talked about that game and talked about it as a 4-2-2-2, right? With, with kind of a dual striker okay. formation with two attacking midfielders underneath. But they did use a 4-2-3-1 for large stretches of last year. We also saw super aggressive back three shapes. But nothing that, that to my mind, at least looked a lot like a 3-5-2. So this would be a little bit of a new thing for Julian Nagelsmann at Bayern. I don't think it's impossible for them to use a 3-5-2. So I'm going to walk us through it a little bit here. I think Serge Gnabry totally works as a second striker and can play off another nine very well. More on that, though, in just a second. So let's start from the back and build forward. I think Bayern are still maybe a little light on center back depth. Maybe they're okay. But Delict is there, at least. So they have the quality to go to a back three. Alfonso Davies and Maserati can play as the wing backs without any issue. Yashua Kimmich can play as, as the number six. And you can either go for a, a, a real 3-5-2 or you can kind of go for a 3-4-1-2 with Thomas Muller as that number 10 behind the front two. You can do this in a few different ways. And then you get to the front line. And if we want to pencil Serge Gnabry in as one of the forwards, I don't really know who you pair him with. And that's where this gets difficult for me and, and where I start to think that this isn't likely, at least with Sadio Mane as the other number nine. I think it gets difficult here because... Serge Gnabry works when he can be the one running in behind and playing off of another number nine who maybe does the more traditional number nine things, like dropping in occasionally, holding the ball up, being not necessarily a bigger body, but just doing contrasting things. So you have these counter movements with one dropping in, one running in behind, or one standing firm and one running in behind, or running underneath and then moving in behind. 
I think that works, but I, I don't know that it works with Mane. I'm not saying it, it couldn't work in the right circumstances, but in a tra- in a classic 3-5-2 or just two-striker setup, I don't think Mane is different enough from Serge Gnabry. I don't think they're different enough from each other. Mane, I think, is much more of the, okay, I'm going to drop in occasionally and get the ball to feed. I can hold up the ball a little bit, but I'm going to run in behind and find space in the box and turn and go. And, and for me, that's pretty much what Serge Gnabry would look like and, and does look like when he plays forward anywhere, really, on the front line, winger or or as a more central attacker. So if we're seeing Chopa Moting start up top as a number nine, which has happened before for Bayern Munich, and it will happen again this season, getting Moting and Chopa Moting and Mane up top together or or him and, and uh, Serge Gnabry up top together, that to me fits better from a player profile standpoint than getting Mane, who I think we all agree is going to be, at least right now, Bayern Munich starting number nine as we head into the season, whether that's as a lone nine or as part of a dual striker shape, I don't know. But for now, I think it, it might make more sense for Gnabry to be on the wing whenever Sadio Mane is is playing as the number could, nine for this team. Could, could it work with Thomas Muller getting push, pushing him further forward? Into, I mean, I know it's not maybe his best position to play as a, as a centre forward, but he has played there previously. Yeah. In his career, so maybe you have Mane as the the apex, and then have one like uh, Nabri or 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 Mane kind of buzzing around him. Maybe. maybe yeah, I mean, it, doesn't that just end up though being like more of the four two three one? I guess forget what the the back line looks like, but if you have Mane up top, and then you're you're trying to pair Muller with him in this instance, it's just going to look like a nine and a in a ten with then Serge Gnabry coming in from the wing. And I don't think you're really changing all that much. And if we do want to play Mane and Muller up top together, or or Muller and Gnabry up top together. I think you lose out, especially with Gnabry and Muller. Mane maybe can do it. I think you lose out on some of the ability to hold the ball up. Thomas Muller is just going to drift and kind of go where he wants to to find the game. Not as a traditional number 10, but he's still going to pop up in different pockets of space. And Gnabry is just going to go vroom, vroom and, and run in behind. And you don't really have any outlet there. And for Bayern Munich, against a low block, this might be the recipe, right? It might not matter uh, if you have a, a guy who can hold the ball up and really play the ball to feet. Because you're going to get Thomas Muller doing that stuff. You're going to get Joshua Kimmich doing that stuff. And, and there's going to be Musiala doing it. And you're going to be funneling the ball out wide. So I'm not saying this stuff couldn't work. I'm not saying the 3-5-2 with Gnabry up top with somebody won't work either. I just don't know that from a profile standpoint, it makes the most sense right out of the gate for Julian Nagelsmann. T-Rock, anything to add to this one? Would, would a 3-5-2 affect the month in which Bayern win the Bundesliga? Uh, maybe. Maybe it makes it a little bit later because I think it doesn't work quite as well as what they're going to do uh, this season. I think Joe has given a great answer because I found this one sort of hard to answer because my original answer was, I think a lot of times you see teams go to a back three when they don't trust some of their midfielders or the midfield depth. And so my original answer was basically Barcelona need worse players. I think Joe has done a good job of explaining why really it's about how they would need a better strike partner. And so if we're like answering this question as it's asked, I think my answer is uh, what would it take? It would take them going back in time and signing Masrawi last season. Because when they did play with a back three last season, I believe Gnabry was used as one of those wingbacks and it did not work out for him. So even in this time when they did use that back three, he was a wingback and not a central or like a secondary striker. And I wonder if they had had Masrawi or even Dest, if Dest had gone to Bayern, if that would have been a thing we would have seen given the familiarity between Gnabry and Nagelsmann. But they didn't, so we didn't. Uh, but I think Joe has has nailed it with why we won't see that anytime soon. I think it could be really interesting, and I think Serge Gnabry is an excellent player. Wherever you put him, just maybe not wing back. I, I think it works with the defense in the midfield. It's the attack that I have a I have a trouble have trouble with. I'm not sure how that would how that would look. 
All right. Thank you very much, uh, Guy, for that question. Let's take a very quick break. When we come back, we're talking tall players. Back soon. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Total Soccer Show, welcome back to our listener questions. Andrew McPherson has got on the line and said, between Ryan and John Green, I've become pretty aware of the all-important news from AFC Wimbledon. The Wimbley Wombly's recently signed Kyle Hudlin, who is 6'11", or just over two metres if we're going metric. John Green's absolute joy at the signing of a new small bottom big made me wonder who are the tallest players ever in pro soccer. Um, yeah, uh, Andrew is absolutely true. Uh, that's uh, Kyle Hudden has signed for AFC Wimbledon this season. He came from Huddersfield via Solihull Moors. He is, by my reckoning, Graham, the tallest active outfield player uh, in the current soccer world. I found a Danish goalkeeper who plays in the English lower leagues called Simon Jorgensen, who is also six foot eleven. But obviously, he's a goalkeeper, and uh, it tends to be Graham that uh, outfield players aren't quite as tall as that. Yeah, so I I found a couple goalkeepers. I found Christoph Van Hout, who is a, a six ten Belgian goalkeeper, plays for Westerlo in, in in Belgium. He has he has a giant, and I've decided all I want in in life now is a, is a picture of him and Sebastian Javinko standing next to each other at a, a corner. That is all I want. Uh, so if someone can make that happen, thank you very much. I found another Danish goalkeeper. Tony Brogard uh, played in played in 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 Denmark. Out, an outfield player, I found Paul Miller, whose whose name is is a name I, I'm actually familiar with because he played in the Scottish lower leagues. I'm pretty sure he would have played against Stirling Albion at some point. He played for Elgin City, who famously had to heighten the ent- entrance to their their dressing room at Borough Briggs to make room for for Paul Miller. I I have been in that dressing room at, at Borough Briggs, and it doesn't surprise me that they had to make modifications for a six foot ten player. It is very cramped in there but I actually couldn't find a player that was as as tall as uh, the Wibbly Wombly's new number nine Wibbly Wombly's how do we feel about that as a as a as a team name Graham so I hadn't heard that before and I also hadn't heard of the term small bottom big so I did wonder (laughs) if we were actually speaking English anymore uh John Greenisms uh, these are uh, John Green the, the authors you know who sponsors one of the stands at a uh, uh, play on in fact and he, he sponsored one at King's Meadow um uh, and Andrew added in his question that he most of his Wimbledon news comes from John Green's podcast Dear Hank and John where the two brothers talk with one another it isn't a soccer podcast but it's a delight uh, says Andrew uh, I don't know how I feel about promoting other podcasts as I just did there but I agree with the sentiment are there there entirely yeah apparently there are apparently other people do do this thing uh, that was news to me also yeah. Graham yeah um Taylor tall players uh yeah I, I had Kyle Hudlin as uh 6'11 uh, he, though he is also listed at 6'9 and 6'10 it seems like there is a little bit of difference uh based on where you're getting your sources uh Simon Block Jorgensen uh Graham did you mention him I didn't 
Uh, he's a uh, 6'11", German-born Danish goalkeeper. I love that as I read these lists, it really depends on when they're published. Because I, I know I had Christoph uh, von Hout, who I'm assuming, uh, Graham mentioned him, uh, is also related to Milhouse von Houten. Uh, when they immigrated, <laughs> maybe they added the N or the E-N on the end. But like when I read the article about mom says it's cool. him uh, being listed as number one, he was the tallest player. Then uh, Block Jorgensen was named the tallest player. And then now I've seen Kyle Hudlin listed as the tallest player ever in history. So I, I'm not really sure <laughs> Which random website I should go with, but I think 611 is about the tallest we've seen. Yeah, you guys might remember in our Total Soccer Show Slack, I sent a picture of Hudlin a couple of weeks back. Uh, oh, yeah. When yeah. flanked by AFC Wimbledon staff members, and he's like twice their size. It is quite crazy. And it, it reminded me, um, I, I, when, I was, when I was a young lad, I saw um, Peter Crouch play for QPR when he was a teenager, and just how different he looks. Uh, compared to the other players because of his sheer height and sort of gangliness. And I I do wonder whether there's a point where height becomes a disadvantage in the mechanics of being an outfield soccer player. Obviously a big advantage for a goalkeeper, but I don't know. What do you think, Joe? I mean, there's a reason why we don't see, why it's rare to see a a big man in the NBA with great ball handling skills or or elite quickness. Those players do exist, and, and the ones that do have both of those things are oftentimes legends. I think about Kevin Durant, who's a giant dude, but somehow it's still incredibly athletic and incredibly quick and coordinated. That stuff's just rare. And I think in soccer, when it's not even like you can you can grow in coordination by using your hands every single day. No, it's 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 feet, and it's much more of a of a rare skill. It's it's a weird thing to try and go out and do something with your feet all the time, like playing soccer. When you're tall and and you're just a lot more gangly, it's it's much more difficult. So the amount of success that Peter Crouch was able to have is incredibly impressive to me. And then also you get any of these players that were able to actually make it up into a decent level in professional soccer. I mean, doing that at any height above 6'5 or 6'6 as an outfield player is, or even a goalkeeper who, who need, those goalkeepers need incredible lateral quickness and reaction time and coordination. Doing that as, as a tall person is really hard. So I have a lot of respect for all of these players. Yeah, I think my guess would be like the average NBA height is, I don't know, probably like 6'6". Six, six. I think the average, like if you looked around the globe, the average height for a soccer player, I'm guessing it's closer to like 5'8 or 5'9 is the average. Like it, it, it's it's strange when you do see players in person. I remember one of the first games I covered was a preseason Milan game and there was Gennaro Gattuso. And you expect him to be like nine feet tall because he just has that personality and that energy. He's, he's tiny, he, yeah. He's pretty small. Like, and I think that is pretty much par for the course. I think players tend to be a little bit shorter and very, very light because that allows them to run and run and run and run. So I agree with Joe. I think at a certain point, even with goalkeepers, height not necessarily that big of an, of an advantage. Er- Erling Haaland is six foot five, right? And he, he f- seems like a giant. C- can you imagine what it's like to be a six foot 11, <laughs> number nine, like the, the one that Wimbledon have just signed. Joe, come, um, I, I, Joe's yeah. going to get on my shoulders, and then we're going to figure yep. out what that is. Yeah, yep. that's the point. bring it on. I would, I would, I would also like to see a manager play a joke on the rest of the team after they sign a six foot eleven striker. First training session with the guy, and he's gathered all the team, the, the players around, and they're like, right, okay, we're going to play it into this guy's feet. We're going to get him turned. We're going to use his pace. Just use everything <laughs> besides the most obvious the uh, aspect of his floor. game. Yeah, okay, always on the floor into this guy. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think the key difference, Graham, with Erling Haaland is that he's also six foot five wide 
that uh, makes a difference whereas Huddle is, uh, <laughs> is quite a lot slimmer than that so yeah quite a frightening proposition but thank you Andrew for that question let's go to Preston Chitty who was inspired by Taylor's he calls it a lazy rendition of the Janazai song last week hurtful I know I know um, what player chant lives rent free in your head and you relish the chance to sing along to it for example uh, Preston says he sung the Sucker and Emil, Ro- Emil Smith Rowe chant far too many times to count last season along with every other Arsenal fan bonus points to anybody who sings their pick apart from uh, me apparently because I would enjoy that too much says <laughs> Preston yeah. um, which is very true um, Graham what do you think about this one so if you ask me the best player chant of all time was the one for Bobby Zamora which is to the tune of that Zamora and it goes when the ball hits the goal let's not share our call let's Zamora which is absolutely brilliant but even better was when the opposition fans would adapt it to when the ball hits your head and you're sat in Rosette it's Zamora and that for me is football terrace banter at its absolute oh, that's best so good. that is so yeah. good Graham yeah that is excellent <laughs> Germany nominations for a chant and bonus points for singing so I had a really hard time with this one and I wanted to contribute and be fun and, and have something beautiful to sing. I Taylor, and I wanted to get your perspective on this. Are player chants a, a real thing in American soccer? Like, like I'm trying to think of games. I've never heard a player chant at a game that I've attended. Let me put it that way. The, the Most of the soccer games I've been to in my life are Phoenix Rising games. And there were chants for the team coming from the supporter section. But I never heard there, and maybe this has changed since the last time I've been because it's been at least a year, maybe two. But I, I never heard a player chant. And I, I don't know. I feel like I'm not able to properly contribute to this question in particular. I know I have heard some in my life. A player chance, but none of them live even close to rent free in my head. There's a lot of catchy ones, and now Graham's is going to be living in there yep. for a, quite some time. But it's not. Is it? Is it that much of a thing in the United States? Taylor, tell me. I don't think so. I think it's. It probably is for teams that have a particular legend or a particularly important player. I think you you might get that more. Again, I'm not speaking as an expert on that one either because I'm not spending every week in MLS supporter sections. But I, I do think when you get them, they tend to be in my mind, versions of songs that are sung about other players, the kind of common ones to a common beat that then you just make about that player. But yeah, I don't think we have necessarily as clever ones that come to mind. I think the kickers have like one or two for certain players, the Richmond kickers here in Richmond. Uh, But yeah, I think it is uh, less of a common thing for sure. Darn. Well, I'm going to do my homework, Preston, and I'm going to find one that I like between now and the end of the season. And when that happens, I will make sure to let you know. I think for me, my favorite I always come back to is um, the West Ham fans who were at Anfield many a year ago and John Joe Selvey was warming up for Liverpool on the sideline <laughs> and they started singing, he's coming for you, he's coming for you, Harry Potter, he's coming for you. And um, it was quite well <laughs> taken by John Joe Selvey. He, he seemed to enjoy it. He gave them a clap for it. I just And there's, there's a clip of it on YouTube. But I love those spur of the moment ones where you, it's, it's clearly someone who's just invented it on the spot. Those are typically my favorites and i think the, the the tune that i think is a fairly modern soccer chant tune that gets stuck in my head the most and i think it's the most suitable soccer tune uh, melody i should say uh, that is used in chants is seven nation army and i always think of oh tiago silva as the name being associated with that but obviously there are 
hundreds of names you could put in that. So that's the one I think is the biggest earworm for me. And I like those yeah. spare in a moment ones. Um, along along a similar line, it's not particularly witty and there's actually no no real lyrics to it. But I always liked the, the Falcao song that Atletico Madrid fans used to sing. And I think my United fans sang it as well, but obviously very, very fleetingly. He was only there for one season, but it basically just goes, lo, 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 Radamel Falcao, lo, 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 Radamel Falcao. And hearing 50,000 Atleti fans singing that, and it just gets louder and louder and louder, and it repeats and repeats and repeats, and it can go on for like 20 minutes, and that's always one of my favourites. As I say, not not clever or witty or or funny, but just as an earworm, when I hear Falcao's name, I always think of that song. And Graham, surely belonging to that genre, or perhaps belonging to that genre, was the Colo and Yaya Torre song the Manchester oh City fans would sing. So it was to the tune of a, a hard house Dutch um, band called Two Unlimited. They had a song called No Limit in the 90s. And they go, Colo, 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 Torre, yeah, 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 my my daughter yeah. my daughter sings that because we sing it in our house. Even though it's about Man City, I find that song to be that catchy that she knows that one. And and that one like transcended soccer as well yeah. in the UK. So I've not I've not been to a club in a while, but there was a time uh, at a younger period of my life where you'd go to a club and people would be doing that chant. It kind of it took root in British culture, not not just uh, not just the soccer. And it had a dance. And- it had a dance. It does. That, Ryan, I was going to say that that's the best part of it for me uh, when I'm singing it with my daughter is that she knows she's not yet two, but she knows the colo part, you go down. And for the yaya part, the hands go up. That's her favorite part of it is, is ducking down for the colo part and then standing back up with her hands in the air for yaya. I love that song. That's a great Str- one, Ryan. Strangely, it has, I have two nieces who I'm visiting here in the UK and uh, the youngest calls, the eldest uh, is called Sophia and her sister calls her yaya. So I did the colo yaya song for them yesterday and they enjoyed it very much indeed. Uh, Taylor, any more to add? Yeah. Yeah. First of all, laziness. I have to take issue with that one. Laziness is the word. <laughs> I would go with Taylor's awkward rendition because his singing voice is terrible. Uh, we can't all be Ryan Bailey. Uh, I have a, a Turkish song that is about Galatasaray, not about a player that I learned phonetically that will forever be in my head because I took that amount of time to learn it. Uh, but the one that is currently in my head, uh, pretty pretty much on rotation, is the Eric Ten Hag song. I think I sent you all uh, the video oh, of the Man United yeah. fans singing it. But I, it's... um. Uh, one hog, two hogs, <laughs> three hogs, four hogs, five hogs, oh, yeah. six hogs, seven hogs, eight hogs, nine hogs, ten hog, ten hog, ten hog, <laughs> and it goes on. I love that one a lot. And I think uh, similar to Graham's, like when it, whenever there's one that's like it's it's very it's clever, but it's simple and it's funny. I think that's what you want when it comes yeah. to uh, terrace chanting. So I'll go with uh, the ten hog song for sure. Wonderful stuff. May we hear it many a time this season, T-Rock. That just about wraps up listener questions. Or does it? Bonus Graham content time, everybody. Raphael Boban has got in touch with a question for Graham, who says, uh, Raphael says, our daughter will be attending university in Scotland over the next four years. Oh, four-year course. We'd like to visit the the not-so-well-known stadiums or venues in the Scottish Premiership that are perhaps special in some way. It could be the setting, the environment, the atmosphere. Uh, We're looking for something off the beaten track that would be normally overlooked by most folks in other words doesn't want to go to Celtic or Rangers Graham so uh, Raphael's asking what would you, you recommend there well Raphael being brave and his daughter being brave to hang with the wildlings above the wall um, so what would you recommend while they're there 
I'll have I'll have you know, Ryan, that we have some of the best universities in the world. I'd imagine that's why uh, Raphael's daughter is coming over here yeah, to go well, for on, four years. Anyway, Harry or William didn't they go to St Andrews? I'm pretty sure. St Andrews, yeah. indeed, and yeah. my wife. You know, that's actually the three people that they they mention all the time. Yeah. They say. Uh, Prince William, Kate Middleton, and and my wife. Yeah, yeah. there you go. Um, so, football <laughs> recommendations. If it's atmosphere you're looking for, try and go to Hearts home game at Tyne Castle. Tyne Castle is a, is a brilliant stadium. I would say it's maybe the best stadium in, in Scottish football. The stands are right on top of the pitch. It's a good mix of historic, but also a little bit modern. They've got a brand new main stand. It's big enough that, that the crowd feels important, but not so big that it's, that's overwhelming. And it's, it's in an area of Edinburgh, Gorgie, which is surrounded by fantastic pubs and places to just soak up the atmosphere pre and post-match. So I would I would recommend Hearts. Also, Hearts are, are pretty decent at the moment. They're going to be in European competition this season. Motherwell is also a very nice stadium to, to visit. They've got an ultra section, which isn't quite Serie A levels, but they make a good noise. And Fur Park is, is certainly a very characterful stadium. It has two very old stands. The main stand, weirdly, doesn't stretch the full length of the pitch because the story there is that when they were building it, the house behind that stand objected to the, the new stand blocking sunlight into their garden. So you have these three big stands and then this one three-quarter length stand, which is is kind of weird, but a, a good place to visit. Um, if you're looking for something very much off the beaten track in Scottish soccer, and this isn't Scottish Premiership, but I'm going to give you a couple of lower league recommendations as well. Try going to a Brecon City game at Glebe Park. It's arguably my favourite away ground in Scotland. Brecon are in the Highland League right now, so don't expect high level of soccer. It'll be a small crowd, but it's got a quirky little main stand. One side of the pitch is a hedge, and that hedge forced UEFA to change their, their rules. Basically, they brought in rules about 15 years ago that said you couldn't have a hedge at the side of a pitch, and Brecon appealed it and won. So the, the hedge stayed, and it's it's still there to this day. And they do, obviously, the most important thing of any football match, going to a football match, is the food. They do <laughs> wonderful soup and pies and sausage rolls, and uh, it's an Angus. So no matter where you are in Scotland, it's far enough away that you feel like you've had a proper day out, but not really that much of a mission. And sticking in Angus, I would have to also mention Arbroath. They play right on the edge of the North Sea, so bring a, a warm jacket, but it's a, a wonderful community club. They're doing really well right now, so it's a good it's a good place. You know, it's, a, it's not a toxic club right now. Some clubs in Scotland you can go to, and it's a very angry atmosphere. I don't think that's the case at, at Arbroath at the moment. I haven't been to Gayfield in a while, but it's, it's one of my, my favourite away grounds. So those are my recommendations. Good stuff, Graham. Now, we've established um, I don't care much for the north of the UK because it's cold, wet, and full of garbage people. We but, have. Um, if if, if um, Raphael and, and or his daughter wish to go a little further south, below the wall to Newcastle. I think there's a straight road. There's a highway from Edinburgh to Newcastle. Um, how easy a trip would that be? Because Newcastle is one of my favourite cities in the world. Brilliant yep. people, amazing stadium to visit. Yes, I have done that trip a number of times. So the the three kind of stadiums in in England that I would that I've been to plenty of times are St James's Park, Goodison Park, Old Trafford. They're all fairly easy to get to from Scotland. Obviously, Everton and United is a, is a little bit further, but. Newcastle United just head down the A1 from the east coast of Scotland, from Edinburgh, as you say there, Ryan. St. James's Park is one of the most atmospheric grounds in uh, in, in English football and in, in world football, actually. And also the ground is right on, they call it the cathedral, they either call it the cathedral on the hill or the cathedral on top of the hill. It basically is perched on the top of Newcastle. It's right in the city centre. There's loads of pubs around it. Newcastle fans are really passionate. So yeah, absolutely would recommend that as well. 
Yeah, definitely. And for any American visitor, I think um, if you are going to leave London, if you visit uh, England or the UK, then Newcastle will be my first pick uh, for the reasons outlined. And some excellent recommendations there from you as well, Graham. Thank you very much. That concludes our listener questions episode for the day. Graham, once again, thank you very much for your time, sir. Thank you, Ryan Bailey. Joe Lowry, pleasure as always. Right back at you, Ryan. And Taylor Rockwell, thank you so much. Uh, let us know if any chupacabras uh, are in your vicinity. We'll uh, we'll be there with our vigilante group to help. I shall do my best. If you don't hear from me, then the chupacabra uh, got me, which means I guess I am also part goat, which is troubling for a different reason. <laughs> Wonderful stuff. Listener, thank you very much for joining us. We'll be back on the feed shortly. But for now, bye. Bye.